the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, welcome to the Truth Perspective. I am Harrison Cayley, my co-host today, Elon Martin. Hello. And joining us in the studio, we've got William joining us back. Good afternoon. Shane here again. Hi, everybody. And a special friend of ours, extra co-host for today, Leslie. It's so good to be here. From uh, Carolina. So today... um, we're going to focus on some of the stuff going on in the States, more in particular with the riots and hijinks and all kinds of stuff following the death, the murder of Bray a, few we- a couple of weeks ago. Um, actually, what, when was, what was the date? April, tw- April 12th. April 12th, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, things have developed since then. We'll get into that. Um, but just to... Some some breaking news that I just well it was breaking let's say yesterday so at uh, seven thirty the UN EU and China all warned the White House the White House regime against using force in Baltimore this was followed ten minutes later Angela Merkel stating the National Guard should be ordered out of Baltimore the dignity revolution cannot be suppressed by force two minutes later Russia's ambassador. Uh, is seen on the streets of Baltimore distributing distributing donuts and water among the prisoners, asking them to stand until victory. And then at 8.08, Lavrov and Cherkin held a telephone conversation on the candidates for the post of U.S. President and Secretary of State who would assume their offices after Baltimore's dignity revolution. So that's, uh, yeah, that's real news. Uh, It's true. It's true. (laughs) It's pretty remarkable. I don't think um, we've ever heard uh, state leaders from other nations, uh, you know, kind of giving direction or, you know, this is usually the tone that the U.S. takes with other countries. It's an arrogant manner. And, uh, but here, uh, there seems to be a legitimate uh, kind of um, critique. Except, uh, no, except that's all fake because no one... Um, no one would dare to insult the the U.S. in that way, right? I mean, you just don't do you don't do that to another sovereign sovereign country. You don't interfere with their internal affairs. What was that? Did you really just make that up? I didn't make it up. <laughs> well, that was actually on Fort Russ. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it was actually translated from Russian. Mm-hmm. So there's actually the the stuff in Baltimore is getting a lot of of traction in well, in Russia I, right now, and. Yeah. Um, and that was just kind of a little satirical Twitter tweet that uh, I, I don't know who made it. Some some I random it Russian. It sounded like it was too good to be know, true. Too exactly. too much to hope for their dignity revolution. It is because that's exactly what happened. Um, of course, over a year ago, Ukraine with uh, <clears throat> the U.S. and other countries basically, um, you know, saying those things about what was going on in Ukraine. You had. Newland handing out cookies 
on Maidan and, you know, just ridiculous statements and, and posturing and stuff like that going on. Whereas, I mean, it just shows the crass level of, of U.S. politics and just how arrogant they are that they, you know, presume to, to take that attitude towards what, what is going on in another country and not even that, but to actually foment those, um, those events going on in another country. So it's just interesting to see how the how another country is seeing what's going on in the United States right now. Well, you know, it really does show you know United States position, you know, towards its own people as as well as you know those of other countries. Um, you know, they'll only support um, you know so called protests when you know it's in their own uh, best interest, and you know the the. Uh, the people in the United States, you know, they're were being seen as the enemy. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a, it's 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 pretty interesting to see um, how these, you know, this whole portrayal of uh, you know these protests, these riots, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it, it's it's just a very inhuman um, perception that they're trying to uh, depict people as, and um, you know, it makes you wonder, kind of, you know, what what's the larger picture. You know what are they? Um, what 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 are the motives behind uh, what's going on? But um, we can probably you know get to that as we uh, get into the show. Um, one of the one of the interesting things that I came across was um, Donald Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, he he was speaking about the looting in Iraq, and uh, he had a a, a pretty well, Interesting perspective. We've actually got Rumsfeld on the line. He's going oh. to he's going to repeat what he'd said at that time for us. So so thanks, Don, for being here with us. On the other hand, if you think of those pictures, very often the pictures are pictures of people going into the symbols of the regime, into the palaces, into the boats, and into the Ba'ath Party headquarters, and into the places that have been part of that repression. And and while no one condones looting. Uh, on, on the other hand, one can understand the pent-up feelings that, that may result from decades of repression and people who've had members of their family killed by that regime, for them to be taking their feelings out on that regime. Well, thanks, Don. I was actually surprisingly lucid. <laughs> when it fits the narrative. Yeah, because, of course, there is looting and rioting going on in Baltimore. Maybe we should uh, just recap um, yeah. what initiated the riots a few weeks back um, on the 12th, in case anybody's been uh, away from their uh, source of, sources of news or not reading SOT recently. And shame on you if, if that's the case. Um, I have a brief summary here. On the morning of April 12th at 8.45, two officers, uh, Edward Nero, who's 29 years old, and Officer Garrett Miller, 26 years old, gave chase on bicycle after a Mr. Freddie Gray fled on foot. He made eye contact, Freddie Gray did, with Lieutenant Brian Rice, who is 41 years old. And incidentally, Lieutenant Brian Rice is the only police officer that has some sort of a disturbing record at some point in his past uh, lieutenant rice had his service weapons and his personal weapons confiscated there's some sort of domestic discrepancy in which they felt the need to take his weapons away from him 
Um, but Lieutenant Brian Rice asked uh, officers Nero and Miller to respond. They chased, they gave chase, and to where they caught him on a street corner. Uh, Officer Miller restrained him what's called a leg lace. I did look up uh, exactly what a leg lace is. That's not a term I advocate Googling. Um, a bystander said they folded him up like he was origami. He was having trouble breathing and protesting quite loudly at this point. Two citizens were able to video the arrest at this time, an undisclosed woman and a man named Kevin Moore, who actually subsequently was arrested this past Thursday for making an illegal turn. He used his left turn signal to make a right turn, allegedly. Hmm. Um, at this point, they detained the three officers, detained him on the corner until Officer Caesar Goodson arrived with a police van. Uh, Officer Goodson is the officer facing the most egregious charges, uh, six total, and he is the only officer facing uh, a murder charge, and that would be second-degree depraved heart murder, which carries a sentence of up to 30 years. Depraved heart is also called depraved indifference. Um, then the other two officers involved are a sergeant, Alicia White, who's 30 years old, and then a young officer, Brian Porter, I believe. I have too many pages of notes. Um, but they did not come on the scene until later. And the charges, like I said, that, that Goodson, the driver of the van, is facing, uh, there are six charges. And... He is charged with, we said, second-degree depraved heart murder. He's also charged with involuntary manslaughter, manslaughter by vehicle to gross negligence, which is important. He's also charged with second-degree assault with a vehicle by criminal negligence, and then, of course, misconduct in office. So the gross negligence and the criminal negligence, apparently gross negligence is worse. Criminal negligence is defined as being careless or inattentive. Gross negligence is serious carelessness under which a reasonable person should have been foreseen uh, foreseen a bad outcome. So that kind of gives you an idea of what Goodson's being charged with. Mm-hmm. The three officers uh, that arrested him are also being charged with five separate counts, assault and things like that. And then um, the lieutenant or the An unlawful sergeant, arrest. Right? Yes, an unlawful or mis- misconduct and then in false imprisonment. Mm. Um, was what they were charged with. He was found with a knife on him, which, interestingly enough, in the initial police report was defined as a switchblade, and that was something that the state attorney was very forthcoming about, that there was no switchblade found. It was a completely legal knife to have, um, and it never should have been mistaken nor called a switchblade in the report. And that was even curious to me, because first of all, I mean, a switchblade is illegal, so... You can understand why they would have said that, but it wasn't a switchblade, and they didn't, they weren't pursuing him because of any any sighting of a, a switchblade. All that happened was he made eye contact with the police officer and then started running, which I think most reasonable people would do if they saw, you know, whenever they see a police officer, okay, crap, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to get, I don't want to get involved. You know, it's not not to say that you should do that, but it's a perfectly understandable response to away from, you know, the thug in a big blue suit or but William Porter was the name of the other officer that was involved and he was the one that actually placed Mr. Gray in a sitting position but still didn't buckle him up once in the van mm-hmm. 
he was the last one to have any contact with him while he was alive. So basically, uh, Freddie Gray was in the van, uh, kind of laced up or shackled up in this uh, Oregon kind of configuration or just um, in a really uncomfortable position. He wasn't buckled up. Uh, they, they ride him around in the streets of Baltimore. Uh, the poor guy gets his neck broken uh, during this ride. Uh, when they finally stop at the police station, uh, he's, he's unconscious and in a coma. Was, yeah, well, the, the van had made, I think, three stops. After three stops. Him up. Two were made to check on him. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Officer Goodson, who was driving the van, and then again, Officer William Porter made the call that he didn't need a medic. Mm-hmm. And then they stopped also to pick up another suspect. Um, yeah. Sergeant Alicia White was responding to two citizens' complaints about the arrest. Um, it was so heartbreaking that the attorney read out that her words, she spoke to the back of the victim's head. He did not respond. He was unresponsive, still mm-hmm. breathing at this point, but unresponsive. And still, she did not call for a medic. So they had multiple opportunities to offer this man uh, critical life-saving treatment. And so what had actually happened, his his spine was, quote, like 80% severed. So, you know, I, I had a... I had difficulty knowing what that even meant at first. It turns out it was in his neck. So his, his neck was basically 80% severed in, inside. Um, and, uh, well, the Washington Post put out a just this ridiculous article a couple days ago saying that they had um, come into possession of a document um, that had uh, what... Well, so the document was written by a police officer, and I'm not sure if he was one of the six involved or not, but it was a, a search warrant application. And in that application, he he um, quoted the prisoner that had come into the van while Gray was in the van. And so apparently what this prisoner said was that um, that he told investigators that he could hear Gray, quote, banging banging against the walls of the vehicle and believed that he was, quote, intentionally trying to injure himself. So this document was obtained by the Washington Post. <clears throat> uh, the prisoner is currently in jail. This is the guy that made uh, allegedly made this statement. And so he was in the van with Gray, the, separated by a metal wall. There's the, the back of these vans are separated into two compartments. Um, one of the reasons being so that they can have both <clears throat> female and male prisoners. But, um, of course, you can just separate two two prisoners if you need to. And uh, so the paper couldn't um, couldn't reach him to to make a statement after that to to confirm it or not. But interestingly enough, um, a local station, WBAL, um, had reported on this, a reporter named Jane Miller. And so on April 23rd, this was a few days before, she had tweeted, quote, uh, BPD, Baltimore Police Department, uh, Commander Anthony Batts says second prisoner in van with Freddie Gray reports no erratic, dri- uh, no erratic driving by van driver and Gray mostly quiet. Well, it's just like, it's so absurd. I mean, how does a guy in this uh, leg, leg lace uh, thing that's, you know, tied up, with uh, his hands behind his back and his his, his legs tied up. Well, I think yeah. I think the leg. Correct me if I'm wrong, Leslie. If I'm wrong, Leslie, the leg lace was while they were 
Officer uh, Miller, the, the one of the arresting him. officers, was the only one to put him in the leg lace. Yeah. Once he was transferred to the van, they did have him in conventional shackles at yeah. first. Then they took him, they drove to another location, took him out, completed paperwork, and put him in what are called flex cuffs, and then mm-hmm. returned him to the van. But again, they're returning him to the van on his stomach, which if you're having difficulty breathing, mm-hmm. that is not a position you want to be in. Or even, I mean, even in that position, you know, how would exactly. how would somebody be, you know, banging themselves against the wall to such an extent that you sever your spine eighty percent? Like that's, it's just, it's it's absurd. Yeah, I was, uh, I think it was in an article in RT or, uh, you know, I've read so many lately, I, I can't remember, but they had a they whoever had written this article had contacted um, like medical professionals and they'd said they'd told the the journalist that this was impo- it's impossible to for this to be an, a self-inflicted wound you can you just can't do this to yourself it has to, there has to be something else going on well interestingly um you know this isn't the first time that you know a, a case like this has happened um i believe it was in around 2005 uh that there was another man who was arrested for um public urination and um, placed in a, a van in a very similar way as Freddie Gray. And I believe he survived um, for two weeks, and he was able to make some statements. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he's, eventually he did die uh, from, you know, these, these spinal cord injuries. And you know, he said the driver was, you know, was driving crazy, uh, throwing him around, you know, making those sharp corners, and you know he didn't have anything to brace himself. So, so he was basically on the floor of the van, mm-hmm. and yeah. and so just being thrown around in the van was the cause of this. Okay. Right. Because uh, another thing that this medical um, medical expert had said was that if uh, if Gray had been inflicting these wounds on himself like by banging into the walls they would sh- there there should have been um like kind of other telltale injuries on him and according to the autopsy he didn't have these these telltale injuries so the autopsy was actually released i think just before uh, friday so yesterday just before the charges and the conclusion of the autopsy was that it was a homicide so that just kind of throws this this washington post article just out the window i mean you know the washington post hasn't ever had a lot of credibility real credibility but um so it's pretty typical of them i think to put out something like this it's just i also saw another article that said that the gentleman in the van had retracted that statement that they Mm -hmm. denied making it there was no no credibility yeah of course and so i mean if you're working for a a legitimate so-called newspaper and you get this document, I mean, you should have the, the self-respect and the, the honesty to be able to, to at least, if you're going to report on it, to say that this is probably bullshit. Not going to happen with the Washington Post. <laughs> well, and then there's the articles put forth by Fox News where they detailed Freddie Gray's uh, arrest record, mm-hmm. implying that, you know, they had a, that somehow this was justified in any way. And that is also just equally disgusting. And, and maybe just to put um, the, the, the place that this, this happened in context a little bit, uh, I've lived in Baltimore for a couple of years. Uh, there are some, some beautiful areas that are gentrified, but you have large uh, swaths 
of neighborhoods, uh, predominantly black, that are uh, just so poor. Uh, you have some people living in um, these old um, brownstones or old uh, row houses next to uh, houses that have been gutted. Uh, you, you have a lot of, um, there's obviously a big, uh, well, not obviously, but there is a, a very big drug problem uh, in Baltimore um, in, in those areas. Uh, and so, you know, if, if you visit this place and you see how much money has gone into um, kind of revitalizing uh, its its downtown area uh, and and making it pretty for for tourists, and then you travel just a couple of miles uh, into some of these neighborhoods, uh, it's just astounding. Uh, the only other places that that you can compare um, Baltimore to. Would be like the, the South Bronx in the in the seventies uh, before they made a turnaround, or uh, Detroit um, areas of Detroit, and uh, and so the green zone, the green zone in Iraq. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know you have you have, you have these like uh, uh, these thick type scenes where you know you have these highly developed uh, areas, and then outside those boundaries. You know, it really is like a war on the people. If you don't want to visit Baltimore, you can always just watch a few episodes of The Wire, the HBO show from several years ago to, you know, get an idea of what the city's like. I think that, that show did a pretty good job of just showing showing what, not only what Baltimore's like, but just the corruption and the corruption that goes on in politics, in police departments, and, you know, what life on the streets, what the drug trade is like. In areas like that. Yeah, in that same vein, I was listening to two interviews with residents of the Pennsylvania Avenue area, which is an incredibly impoverished area. And they were two uh, black gentlemen that were being interviewed. And the um, reporter asked them, you know, do you feel this is a race issue? And both of them responded instantly with, no, it's it's a class issue. It's a, they don't even see us as as human beings it's not a black and white thing. It's a it's an us and, and them thing. It's these authoritarian figures who are carrying out their own petty war on people that they're supposed to be serving and protecting and yet constantly view as the enemy and the scum and, and somehow less of a human being. Well, I think it's both. Um, like it's, it's not just a race issue. It's not just a class issue. Um, in fact, Go back to some more of the Russian commentary. I've I've read a few kind of editorials and opinion pieces written by by Russians on what's going on, and some of them are seeing this as just the inevitable result of of the capitalist system, just a sign of the failure of the American model of capitalism and democracy. Is that this is the result? And that authoritarian justice mm-hmm. that just steps in and takes over. And they're saying, you know, this one guy was saying it's basically the U.S. is seeing its own, well, we'll be seeing its own uh, period of perestroika, you know, restructuring, that this is the systemic collapse, the capitalistic system. Um, the the much vaunted melting pot has overheated and is no longer functioning. Neither Hispanic nor African American uh, want to integrate into the world of the American dream because just today that dream has been destroyed. And so this, this really is um, a sign of, you know, it's not some anomaly. It's a sign of what 
the American system is. You know, I'm reminded of um, Gary Webb's story in discovering that uh, that the drug problem, as it's called, or the war on drugs, is is manufactured, and that um, you know, for certain intelligence agencies, uh, it's it's part of their income. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, parts of Baltimore, um, parts of LA, and and I'm sure many other neighborhoods and and, and cities in the U.S. are territories in the uh, kind of economic sense. And so, uh, yeah, you know, on a local level, you might have uh, police and and FBI and other agencies trying to um, take out uh, the the drug element, and you have all the middlemen and the and the, the small players, but the really big players. The guys who are bringing it in from South or Central America or Afghanistan or wherever else, the guys who are making the real money um, are from elements of our government for all intents and purposes. And it's this you see the same dynamic in the war on terror, war on terror, war on drugs, where there is this kind of play acting half hearted war on terror where you have the, the FBI basically creating their own terrorists and then arresting them. And you have, you know, these investigations into these radicalized Muslims. And so you have some what might appear to be results on the surface. And then below that, you dig a little deeper and you see that it's the the intelligence agencies that have created this problem and that are training and funding the terrorists in the first place over in Syria and Iraq and coming out of Turkey. It's it's a it's a big shell game. It's it's a total farce. And so just it's the same with the war on drugs. You've got these agencies, like you said, Ilan, who who put up a, a show about, you know, catching some drug, some drug lords every once in a while. You'll have, you know, a big spread on the news where they have a big drug bust. You know, they can show off their trophies. Meanwhile, um, you know, a lot of those same cops are taking <laughs> taking pay, uh, like taking bribes from those same drug dealers. Some of them are involved and you've got the the big, rich like big rich people in business or you know positions of power or intelligence agencies that are running the show i was listening to an interview the other day with a middle eastern insurgent didn't give his name mm-hmm. but it, he said the bottom line is is peace is profitable mm-hmm. you will never see the united states help the middle east to regain any semblance of peace because war means profit mm-hmm. <clears throat> that makes me wonder the Ferguson and the Baltimore uh, uprisings, they almost seem stage managed mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, you only have them occur in these two places, but yet this police brutality and stuff that they're all protesting against is, is nationwide and happens quite frequently. But yet we're only seeing these two hot spots at the moment. Well, yesterday, was it yesterday, May Day? Uh, there yeah. was a, a protest in uh, Seattle, a May Day protest. Mm-hmm. And uh, that erupted with, you know, violence. And, uh, you know, the the protesters that were, you know, acting out, so-called protesters, you know, they were all, like, geared up with the masks and, and you know, they... Anarchy. Yeah, anarchy and stuff. And, you know, it... I, I agree with you, William. You know, it, it is, it does look like it's totally staged. Um, and kind of getting back to the Gary Webb thing, you know, it, it, you know, it makes you wonder, um, just how far back, uh, you know, this, th- these things are, you're kind of 
um, not planned specifically, but, you know, kind of like a, 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 the general direction has been set and, you know, how much of this is a part of that, um, where you're creating these, you know, you're creating chaos basically. And what, what I find, you know, really remarkable about all this is still, you know, despite seeing, you know, all, all this chaos, um, and just the, the sheer brutality, uh, of, of the, you know, police, how many Americans are still, you know, identifying with, you know, this brutality, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really, um, it's baffling sometimes. Um, and, you know, you, you really, you don't know, you know, what to say in the face of it. It's, um, yeah, just baffling. Um, well, I think a large number of them have never, uh, fallen victim to brutality. Uh, you know, they haven't experienced it for themselves, the injustice of it, the, uh, uh, the irrationality of it, uh, the overkill of it. And so they, there's nothing in their experience or their understanding or uh, in their ability to put themselves in someone else's shoes uh, that, that they can go, oh, my God, that's really horrible. It shouldn't happen to anybody. And, um, and Leslie, it looks one of, like, one of yeah. the mothers that was interviewed about her, you know, she has a son in Baltimore and she said, well, I just don't want to give the police a reason to do this. It's so hard for the human mind to wrap itself around the fact there is no reason. Mm-hmm. There is no rhyme or reason to this. Mm-hmm. But it's so frightening. It's terrifying to think of these acts occurring without any reason. And that's what we're talking about here. Well, when um, I don't know if this is the, the same mother, there is a video of, um, you know, this mother slapping her son for, for being in the protests. And, you know, her, her whole reasoning wasn't that, you know, that he shouldn't be out protesting, but she didn't want him, you know, to to be, you know, harmed or whatever by the police. Um, and, you know, th- this this dynamic, you know, if we do look at um, more localized, uh, like, family abuse, you know, what happens is if you have several children, you know, usually, you know, one child or oftentimes one child will be targeted and then the other child will be used to um, to further that abuse. They'll be they'll become kind of the authoritarian follower and kind of uh, reinforce that. And so you can kind of see that play out on you know a larger scale in the U.S. You know you have um, you know a large portion of the population you know being these authoritarian followers to you know these like psychopathic uh abusers and murderers um and you know just furthers the, that that system well there's um you know this is uh this is actually an even bigger story uh in some ways than it appears um on the surface uh and it is even on the surface a big story uh william you, t- you talked about both the events um here in baltimore and ferguson having the appearance of being actually stage managed and there are a number of uh, elements to that, um, and, and you know what does that what does that really mean? Stage managed? How is this one event uh, taken and kind of spinned and and uh, and manipulated in a way to create certain perceptions about what's been happening? Uh, so there are a whole number of things that that has been said um, by people uh, around the Baltimore uh, riots 
and in the media, um, and including the behavior of the police during the riots that speak to this. Um, so one of them was, uh, there are a couple of them that are, that are just uh, a little bit mind boggling. And one is that a bunch of police came to an area of the rioting, uh, left their police cars uh, unattended uh, for several hours. And, um, and, and of course those police cars were um, kind of, uh, vandalized mm-hmm. by some of the rioters. Uh, this harkens back to, I forget, it, it might have been a, um, it was one of these protests in Canada of about five years ago uh, where a police car was also left uh, alone amidst uh, a number of people who were dressed in black who were protesting, I guess it was, um, maybe it was the, the World or Bank or G20. Yeah. Something like that. And, and so, uh, you know, why do that? Why, why leave police property a symbol of uh, injustice and brutality against their own in, in public view and, and un, unattended? And then you have the uh, government agencies and foundations and organizations and NGOs that just immediately come in and swoop in and start providing funds and banners and slogans for people to start rallying around. And it, you know, it's like, you know, it just creates the, it makes a situation worse. It just really inflames people. So it's like just feeding on making this into a more of a fire. Well, and um, you're out, you're also having, you know, um, we're hearing reports from the police who are being said, you know, it's being said that they're being told to stand down. Now, it's not really clear exactly where that order is coming from, but there was a, a, a recent, um, there is a recent bit from the mayor who, uh, who was saying that, you know, she initially did say that, you know, we were, um, I think we have a clip of it, um, mm-hmm. but they were trying to make a, a place for destruction. Um, yeah, do we have that? Yeah, we've got the clip right here. Worked with the police and instructed them to do everything that they could to make sure that the protesters were able to exercise their uh, right to free speech. Uh, it's a very delicate balancing act. Because while we uh, tried to make sure that they were protected from the cars and the other you know, things that were going on, um, we also gave those who wished to destroy space to do that as well. And we uh, worked very hard to, uh, to keep that balance and, and to put ourselves in the best position to de-escalate. And that's what you saw. Okay, so we just heard the clip right there. Now, uh, she just put out a statement um, either today or yesterday uh, refuting that she said anything of the sort. Well, just to reiterate, she said we wanted to help create a a space uh, to destroy. That's what she said. Those are her little words, too. Those are her words. So here's here's her second, her, her refutation of her previous statement. The the very um, blatant mischaracterization of my words um, was not helpful today. I was asked a question about um, the property damage that was done, 
And in answering that question, I made it very clear that we walk a balance, uh, we walk, we balance a very fine line between giving protesters, um, giving protesters, peaceful protesters, space to protest. What I said is, in doing so, people can hijack that and use that space for bad. I did not say that we were accepting of it. I did not say that we were passive to it. I was just explaining how property damage can happen during a, a peaceful protest. It is very unfortunate that members of your industry decided to mischaracterize my words and try to use it as a way to say that we are inciting violence. There's no, no such there thing. There was no order to the police to hold back to let some of this happen during the Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I've never said anything to the to um, to that to that fact. Absolutely not. Yeah, so uh I don't really know how that was mischaracterized. Just, you know, she said it pretty, pretty blatantly herself. Well, um, well, the media is very good at at spinning the tale to just what these NGOs want you to see. You always see the violent part of the protest. You never see the the peaceful aspects of it. And in fact, CNN had a very <clears throat> is very complicit in this. Um, they're commentators, as they call them. Um, Mark Lamont Hill from Morehouse College Professor. He's a regular commentator on and and he embraces racial violence in the streets by saying stuff like this. There shouldn't be calm tonight, he told CNN. Um, Black people are dying in the streets. We've been dying in the streets for months, years, decades, centuries. I think there can be resistance to oppression. So, again, it's it's that stage management is just is just everywhere. There was a there was a prosecutor. Um, I think it might have been in Missouri, uh, as a local, uh, some local county, and you know she came right out and said, you know, shoot them all. Uh, I, I wish I had the whole quote with me, but you know it was, it was pretty disgusting to see it was coming from you know somebody who's charged with um, you know working for for the public, and you know, it's it's just typical of you know the perception that we're seeing. Well, just speaking of, speaking of the protests. Just um, like if you watch the news, you'll get a certain perception of what's going on, and you can even gauge that perception by just talking to people in the street. Like I've got friends who work with you know a large number of people every day, and just overhear what they're talking about. Usually they're white, uh, you know, a bunch of guys around a table, and just talking about these, you know, this group of thugs in Baltimore. So there's a group of thugs in Baltimore and, you know, what are the cops to do? The, you know, they've got to protect themselves. They're totally justified in doing whatever they've got to do. So you've got this, you know, riot by thugs. That's the, that's the general perception from a person that's just totally uninformed or who may think they're informed. Well, in a way there is riding by thugs, but it's yeah, not the people. <laughs> exactly. And so when you, when you look at what's actually going on in these protests, Sure. Yeah, there is some well, quote writing. No, I know, <laughs> I know. We'll get there though. But so, what's actually happening? We've got that, but at the same time, we've got the police beating up and detaining even reporters who are just there and totally uninvolved. Uh, there was a Washington City paper photo editor, J. M. Giordano. Um, he was beaten. He was he was just standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. Apparently, someone apparently threw a rock at a police officer, and so the the cops just charged this photo editor and threw him to the ground and started beating him up. He was taken to the 
to the the station. They said they'd charged him for, uh, for or they'd either charged him or just um, detained him for disturbing the peace. Meanwhile, like his coworkers are shouting at the cops, he's a journalist. He's a journalist. But they just uh, indiscriminately charged whoever was in the vicinity and started beating them up. You know, when I read that, um, the, the the thought that came to mind was that there's this blind, aggressive lashing out uh, force uh, that that police officers have that they're uh, that they're not uh, trained to think about or um, hold back on. It's that hive mentality. It's a hive mentality. Um, they are, uh, they're not really, uh, there, there's nothing in there. In fact, everything about the culture of, of most of these police departments, especially the ones in the inner cities who are, uh, who are policing these areas, so to say, um, suggests to me that, that there's this us against them uh, mentality that uh, is on the verge of being, well, it's not on the verge. It's beyond uncontrollable at this point. And speaking to that, um, I just wanted to get back to a moment, um, for a moment to uh, Stephen Blake, the mayor of, of Baltimore, whose statements we just heard. Um, I don't know if, um, you know, I don't know if that statement she made about creating a space for destruction was a, either a, a kind of a slip, a subconscious slip of some kind. It could be. Uh, what's interesting to note about her is that um, she was one of three mayors who provided input into President Obama's so-called task force on 21st century policing, uh, which uh, basically advocates the federalization of police departments across the country by forcing them to adhere to stricter federal requirements when they receive funding. Now, if you look at this document, I didn't read it. I, I just skimmed it a bit this morning. Um, it it reads like uh, an attempt at uh, kind of reforming the bureaucracy, making things better. Um, but, you know, it's like legislation that gets passed through Congress. They always tag in something in the end that, you know, whatever benefit some piece of legislation uh, was intended to do gets completely subverted, uh, making the matter, you know, making some other matter that may even be uh, unconnected 10 times worse. Basically take the bill and make it into its opposite. Exactly. Um, now, so the very last, uh, you know, there are the pages of, of suggestions that this document has that, that she was supposedly a part of, in, you know, informing. And uh, the last bit of it is work with the U.S. Department of Security to ensure that community policing tactics in state, local, and tribal law enforcement agencies are incorporated into their role in homeland security. So I, I think that that speaks to uh, something else entirely. I was going to say martial law. I mean, just that's exactly what it's sounding like you're describing here is this is a blanket call to give carte blanche to these law enforcement agencies. And that's how we wound up in this mess to begin with. The mm -hmm. six police officers took the entire process into their own hands. So what about these, these six officers? Because uh, I think it's curious that they, that these charges came 
not only that they well first of all that they just that they were charged in the first place second that it that it happened so quickly um because apparently it's it's pretty unprecedented for for something like that to happen and just to have all these charges laid on them um so you know there's there's of course been some criticism from like the the police union in Baltimore who are uh you know contesting the 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 prosecutor and saying she might have a conflict of interest, which she probably doesn't. And so, you know, naturally they're going to say that, but at the same time, you know, what, what's, what's really going on was the decision to, to charge these six officers, um, you know, genuine or, you know, else going on, going on with it because it just, it just strikes me as, as, as weird. It's like, what? You know, you're going to charge some officers for, for beating up and killing a guy? I mean, you just don't do that. Maybe they're, maybe they're the, you know, for the time being, the sacrificial uh, yeah. wolves. Um, you know, the other thing is the damage has already been done if, if you consider uh, a larger kind of um, uh, media, government, police agenda in and kind of painting um, blacks or, or, or underclass as a whole as this unruly, rioting mass. Um, certainly Ferguson, uh, the events in Ferguson helped create that perception. I mean, you know, the damage is done. The images have been put out there. Uh, this might just be a, a steam valve, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in charging these officers to kind of uh, calm things down just enough uh, to things appear to be um, working correctly. Mm-hmm. Well, what are the chances of them actually being sentenced? I mean, they'll go to their, their show trial, and the, just like in Ferguson, the, the, the verdict's going to come up where they're, they're not guilty, then boom, you're going to have the explosion all over again. There's that too. Oh, well, there is a case uh, that came up. Uh, the incident happened in 2012, uh, but there's a Chicago police officer who uh, he he claimed that you know, he was in his car and that there was a, a crowd of people and that one guy came charging you know towards him with a gun and um, and you know he feared for his life and he shot into the crowd uh, killed a 22 year old woman you know they were all unarmed uh, when the police you know came on the scene. Uh, you know, they, they only found a, a cell phone. And uh, so the trial uh, just happened. Um, and the judge ruled um, that, you know, basically that he's saying that the prosecution, you know, made a mistake, charged him with manslaughter. And should have they should have charged him, you know, with, um, with actual murder. And because of that, you know, he, he was let off and... Uh, you know, you can't be charged again because of double jeopardy. Um, so, yeah, you do wonder, you know, um, what is going to come of the the trial anyway? You know, is, is anything going to happen from it? There's several options here. I mean, the officers have the option to plead out for a lesser sentence. I mean, some of these charges, um, Goodson can carry up to 60 years. Um, another thing is, is they have talked about how difficult it will be to have a trial in Baltimore. The trial itself might be moved out of the city. The trial can take over a year to even uh, come to a court. Um, while they can't be charged again in, speaking of what you were saying, Shane, in a criminal court, they can be sued in a civil court, too. So there's that avenue. I do think, though, after reading over the specific charges, these have been carefully 
thought through. And I do have some hope, perhaps it is a foolish one, that some of these charges are going to stick. They didn't just throw a charge up in the air and hope it sticks. I mean, they've got some very specific charges that they're bringing against these officers here. Well, so let's say that these guys, the charges stick. Let's say even that they're convicted. What remains still is this systemic um, brutality uh, and culture of policing in the U.S. that uh, this um, uh, task force on 21st century policing never addresses, uh, not not with any uh, kind of serious thought anyway, um, as far as I can tell. Um, and uh, I, I think I think. That may be one of the main issues here. Um, William, you, you mentioned NGOs a little while ago, non-governmental organizations and uh, and groups coming to Ferguson and coming to uh, Baltimore to help organize um, these rallies, uh, which have which many of many of which have been pretty peaceful. Um, so. That certainly adds another uh, dimension to the whole uh, the whole event that uh, that bears looking at here. Um, many of these organizations uh, are funded and supported by uh, billionaire so-called philanthropist George Soros, um, who, if you've never heard his comments about Ukraine, I mean, he's been vilifying. Russia uh, in the past year, uh, you know, jumping on the Russian aggression bandwagon. And 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 then there's this really incongruent uh, financial support to the tune of thirty three million dollars um, in his organizing uh, these these movements uh, in the U.S., uh, Black Lives Matter uh, and, and a number of other um Groups, and so you have to ask yourself, you know, what is going on here? Well, I think the problem is that you know Baltimore doesn't have enough freedom and democracy. So you know they they just need little freedom and some more democracy, and you know then things would be all right. Yeah, talking right. about George Soros, you know he's he's heavily involved in the social unrest and movement wrecking activity all across the United States, from Florida to Ferguson and now to Baltimore. Um, his foundation has been involved in making sure that not only are American citizens unable to overcome racial divisions with mutual cooperation, but that even the racially isolated participants are unable to accomplish anything of substance. That seems to be part of the game plan. So uh, you have this guy, and by the way, Soros has had a, a big hand in um, supporting uh, the I think it's the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2006. Uh, he's influenced Turkish politics. Um, this is a guy who understands uh, how uh, supporting youth movements and and student organizations, um, you know, to use your you know your words, you know, to to bring freedom and democracy in, into these areas. Uh, well, it's not freedom and democracy at all. It's it's controlled opposition. Uh, you know, in the '60s, you had um, you had organizations like the Black Panthers, 
which was a um, a kind of a uh, semi-militant um, group that was trying to help lift uh, the lives of, of black people in the U.S. Um, and if even if you don't agree with their methodologies, it is a well-known fact that they were infiltrated by the FBI um, in operations called uh, COINTELPRO, counterintelligence programs. Um, so I think I think what we're seeing today in the form of George Soros, uh, you know, organizing and, and helping to financially support all of these non-governmental organizations around these, you know, Black Lives Matter type movements, which on the surface appear to be excellent uh, and have the right intent. And there are lots of uh, very good people with, you know, with uh, good hearts and, and, and good intent trying to do good. Uh, but he he has I mean, this is a this is a master manipulator. Uh, this is a guy who um, who sees a, the picture of of uh, movements uh, on a scale that most people can't even fathom because of the level uh, to which the manipulation is going on. So. You know, to what end is is my question, right? Yeah, it is it is an interesting question. You know, why? Uh, you know, what what possible reason? You know, could there be? You know, to you know, foment these 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 types of um, activities, and you know, what is on their minds? Why are they getting so um, basically, you know, crazy um, that they're kind of being pushed into? You know, uh, they're it just seems like they're, you know, kind of acting as like rats in a, a cage, you know, and they're kind of going nuts. So what is the, well, what not is the reason to behind that? The proverbial dead horse, but it's just peace is not profitable. I mean, I think you can track money to where these, you know, you outfitting the police, they're buying heavier equipment, you know, small town police departments are getting their own riot vehicles, SWAT vehicles, tanks and all this ludicrous stuff in the name of enforcing a peaceful situation and, and there's that angle of it too. Well, there's also the fact that the whole American system is crumbling and coming to an end. And again, if you when you turn to r- some analysis from Russians, you know, they seem to have a better idea of what's going on in America than, the, than Americans do because they can see what's coming. And not just the Russians, um, pretty much every, you know, major venture that the the U.S. has had abroad in the last 20 years has been for the purpose of shoring up this collapsing system. And rather than deal with the internal problems that that plague American society, they just start another war in order to, well, one, to divert attention and... Um, and basically, they've got someone to blame for when you know the shit hits the fan. Yeah, I think that that about sums it up in a in a big way. Uh, there is no accountability um, by our government, by the U.S. government. Uh, there's a great deal of deflection. Uh, there is a constant uh, finger pointing um, in in so many different spheres, and so you know. When the inevitable economic collapse occurs here, um, and and people are are rightfully outraged uh, at 
the lies they've been told um, and and the dreams that have been shattered. Uh, you know, what's going to happen to those people? Uh, you know, when they can't eat, uh, when they're not being protected, um, what are their reactions going to be? And will they be made, I mean, are, are they going to be conflated with ISIS? Uh, are we going to have, uh, you know, uh, well, I guess that's already kind of happened, even if they're not called ISIS. Um, you know, most of, most of these, uh, many of the groups that the FBI has chosen to create uh, in the U.S. to um, create the perception of these little, you know, terrorist cells have been, some of them have been uh, blacks uh, or minorities. Uh, so, you know, are, are the whole group of blacks in this country, are they going to be uh, the next uh, trade unionists, gypsies, homosexuals, Jews? Uh, you know, and that's a reference to... Um, the famous uh, saying by uh, the gentleman who spoke about uh, Nazis taking people away, um, you know, group by group and oppressing them group by group. Uh, so, you know, I, if, if this sounds a little outrageous, if it sounds over the top, um, I would, I would just suggest that uh, it be considered. Uh, obviously if, if you have comments or questions, um, you know, to us here, you can call us and offer your own views on this matter. Uh, but what we're what we're watching is a it's a, a pretty ugly picture that seems to be coming. Well, yeah. Just to add to what you were saying, Harrison, um, yeah, they've got to keep the fear ramped up to keep the attention away from what you know from any kind of collapse that might happen. They've got to keep people afraid of each other and not have their focus on the government or the elites. That seems to be part of the game plan. There was an article that came forward about how some of the perceived spots of where a riot could occur in, in Boss Arab Timor, when the police got there in their riot gear, they found that instead of having to, uh, you know, act out on the public, there was a group of clergymen and noted gang members and social activists that instead were turning away potential rioters themselves instead of letting the police do that. Well, on that subject, the prior to the riots or during the riots, apparently the a lot of the local Baltimore gangs formed uh, like a unity they all formed a truce between them and of course the media reported on this as you know all these gang members are forming a truce in order to you know combine forces and attack the police uh yeah and that's not what happened i've actually i've got a clip of an interview with some of these gang members and you can just hear in their own words what they were what they were doing here's your opportunity tell me what's going on Man, we, just, we want to tell the people of the city right now baltimore city that the image that they're trying to portray of the gangs in Baltimore, the BGF, the Bloods, the Crips, we did not make that to find cops. We did not come together against the cops. We're not about to allow y'all to paint this picture of us. We got we got soldiers out here right now. We dirty. You know, we dirty. They threw bombs at us for trying to stop what's going on right now. Y'all not about to do that to us. So your game plan tonight has been to stop the violence. To stop what's going on. We've been out here all day trying to stop, prevent people from breaking the stores. What group are you in? What, what group is this? This is the Bloods right here. This Bloods. We got the Pyroos over here and we got Bloods over here. We stand as one, though. We're one right now. 
It's Black Man United. I go, I go with Saturday. The pictures that went viral we're Saturday. Not blood or BGF. We are black men and we are united. And we're not going to stop. No matter if y'all even keep on trying to say we out here trying to shoot police, we're not trying to shoot police. We're, gonna, we're not going to let that stop us from doing what we already originally planned to do. That's very interesting. And uh, it's it, it's a testament to how serious they they are taking the situation. Uh, they realize that, that there are forces arrayed against them that um, are, are huge. Um, they've gotten their heads together. I mean, we don't know these guys well, but obviously they are uh, thinking through the situation a little bit. And what are they saying? Oh, no, we're good. Yeah. So... Um, just a just an interesting clip there. And again, I think it's just important to, as we do here, just put together all the puzzle pieces, listen to every puzzle piece that's coming forward. Uh, those interviews with those gang members are certainly, you know, we need to look at that. Also, just the amount of people, not only in the Baltimore event, but in the event that happened in South Carolina and North Charleston, the amount of people who are, have started videotaping and coming forth with these videotapes. Um, that has also provided crucial evidence. I know that um, the state's attorney for Baltimore stepped forward and said that um, Mosby said that the video provided helped them put together a very clear timeline of events. Um, so these different puzzle pieces coming forward, you know, we've got to continue to push those to the front. Well, coming back to what we were discussing just before the clip of members, um, anytime, well, one of the one of the primary uh, objectives of any government, and specifically any pathocracy, of course, is the internal opposition, the internal enemy. And there is a very large potential, at least, internal enemy in the United States. And these are the individuals that see what's going on, see the oppression. These are the these are a lot of the people that go to protests, and, and protests are going on all over the states. Like you said, Shane, there's one in Seattle, there's one in New York, and there. The, a lot of these May Day protests are are focusing on police brutality. So, in a in a in a position of power, you're faced with the the challenge of opposing this internal opposition. So, when something like even when some kind of um, just spontaneous rally or protest breaks out over something like like a uh, like a murder by a police officer or several of them you've got to handle the situation and you've got short-term goals, you know, what you're going to do immediately to diffuse the situation. Then you've got long-term goals. So I think the stuff you were bringing up, Ilan, about, um, you know, what may be happening in the future, that's the long-term goal that's in mind, like the involvement of Soros. So we'll just have to, you know, we'll have to see where that goes because they've got, you know, they think about these things they're planning for them, but in the, in the short term, in the immediate term, you have to, first of all, um, create the right narrative, so, of course, we've got the narrative that these are just thugs and that they're rioters. So it's very hard to turn a peaceful protest into a riot using agent provocateurs and, um, you know, inciting violence and things like that. And there, there was some shady stuff going on even with these protests. Um, like there was a, um, uh, a social media 
analysis group that uh, has done work for for the government, and they they released some of their analyses to to reporters to, to newspapers um, on different accounts that have been used in different protests, basically calling on people to the protests. Kind of like it's, it's pretty similar to what we hear about what went on in Ukraine about. Um, rallying certain types of individuals to come to the city, like to come to Kiev, to come to come onto Maidan and to, to start trouble. So it seems like there, there's that, there's the um, turning, uh, getting actual people to turn the protests and to do actual things that can be reported on in order to present a certain image of it. It always reminds me of that scene in V for Vendetta where V storms the, the media office and you know he's got he's got all the all these employees wearing the masks to disguise himself so they don't know who's who. And there's that one media guy, the really slimy, uh, you know, head of you know propaganda or whoever he is. And you know he has the bright idea: we need cameras. You know, we need to be able to get something that we can show people that we can spin in our own way or in it in a certain way. And so we've seen exactly that with all these riots because that's what people think. They're riots, they're thugs. We don't hear anything about the, the either the peaceful nature of most, the majority of the protesters, and we don't hear anything about why they're actually protesting. So the, the whole thing is spun in such a way that we, that the, 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 not only does the public not know what's going on, they've essentially created this, this group, these protesters, so they've created this group that they can now justifiably oppress some more because they're violent and uh, they're a violent group of thugs. Well, and, uh, you know, the public you know doesn't know what's going on, I think, largely. Well, and big part is, you know, just the media portrayal like we're talking about and also just a, a total distorted view of history. You know, we see uh, these different stages uh, play out, you know, on the world scene and, you know, while America might be, uh, I wouldn't say in the beginning stage, you know, we're, we're kind of like full into it, but we see uh, what's going on, you know, in the latter stages, uh, you know, being played out right now in, in the Ukraine. Um, you know, what, what they're going through is just like, it's, it's so, I mean, you know, they're, they're, what we're seeing there could very well, you know, uh, be, you know, what's going to be happening in, in the United States. Well, I just want to read two two more Russian tweets that I thought were pretty funny. One says, Karma doesn't forget. Say hello to Maidan, America. So, you know, will this be America's Maidan? You know, some Russians are seeing it that way. Another one, long live the Baltimore People's Republic. And this is showing the that, uh, you know, image that has become iconic of the, the young black man standing on top of the, the police car and, you know, kicking in the windshield. So, I mean, and the... I will add that that yeah. young black man did come forward and turn mm-hmm. himself in for for the vandalism. His father actually went on record saying he was very proud of him for doing so. Of course, they held him with a $500,000 uh, bail, which his parents, of course, were unable to pay. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in, in thinking about Ukraine, I, I remember um, uh, during the uh, Maidan protests, there was... Um, uh, a speech by a young, beautiful woman, I forget her name, and, uh, you know, about bringing democracy and, and progress to uh, to Ukraine. And uh, it later came out that uh, the production company that, that filmed her saying these things 
um, was on the payroll of, of uh, the U.S. government, if not the State Department. Only one or two or three steps removed uh, from the, you know, from the company that actually put the film together. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think then about uh, what Ukraine has become. Uh, it's basically, it's beyond a failed state. It's, uh, it's broken utterly. Uh, you know, we hear about um, people who have uh, lived there, who are following the situation closely, and it's, it's broken beyond recognition. Uh, and thanks, in part, uh, to to these little you know videos of these young idealistic um, you know beautiful young student types uh, who are given these glossy productions uh, that help create the perception of uh, a better future um, and and so it's just a reminder of how sophisticated uh, uh, this whole perception management is um, and how far certain elements are willing to go. Uh, in order to achieve uh, regime change or, or huge movements. And I think that one thing people have to remember is that when you're seeing when you're seeing the truth about what's going on somewhere, the truth is gritty. It's not some highly polished, you know, PR campaign with a, you know, a student, you know, with uh, perfect production value and sound, you know, saying what's, what's going on. It's going on YouTube and finding the, the, you know, personally shot camera footage of what's going on in like Donetsk and, and Lugansk. It's seeing the people with their limbs blown off. It's seeing the bombs falling. It's seeing the people being tortured. That's what's really going on. And you can, it's all available. You can see it. And, but, well, you can't see it on the mainstream media and the mainstream is you have to find it on your own because they won't report on that. They'll only report on the State Department-funded glossy productions that want to paint an image of something that's not actually going on. Again, that goes back to why those, I view them as brave individuals that took the videotape of him being arrested Mm -hmm. and being, I mean, the man said they folded him up like a piece of origami. You know, these, we were able to see that in the video, and that's why those individual and ordinary citizens coming forward is so crucial because you're absolutely right, Harrison. It is such a web and such a careful manipulation. Well, it goes back to the NGOs. I remember when that video first came out, and you know, I think it was like uh, "I am Ukraine," mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, it was that you know beautiful blonde woman saying, you know, how uh, Ukrainians were being repressed and. You know, I remember at that time uh, just how much of, you know, people who were, you know, kind of into the alternative media, you know, were really on board. Like, oh, you know, these protests, yeah, you, you know, yay. And, and you know, as things kind of developed and people saw, you know, more information was coming out, people, I think, did come around. You know, but there was, uh, even in among, you know, more informed people, you know, there was a good lag period and, you know, you wonder how long uh, is it going to take, if at all, for, you know, uh, many Americans to, you know, kind of see, you know, what is happening here. And you're seeing the government preparing for that. It's reminding me of these Jade Elm exercises that are coming up this summer. Uh, on on this whole subject of, of creating perception, uh, there was an interesting passage um in an article that was posted to SOT recently 
uh, getting back to Soros's, uh, George Soros's, um, funding and participation in, uh, in, uh, these color revolutions. And, uh, just wanted to read it real quickly. Um, uh, it's actually quoting a, an article by a gentleman named Jonathan Mowat who wrote, as in the case of the new communication technologies, the potential effectiveness of angry youth in postmodern coups has long been under study. As far back as 1967, Dr. Fred Emery, then director of the Tavistock Institute and an expert on the hypnotic effects of television, specified that the then new phenomenon of swarming adolescence found at rock concerts can be effectively used to bring down the nation state by the end of the 1990s. This was particularly the case, as Dr. Emery reported in the next 30 years, concepts, methods, and anticipations in the group, quote unquote, human relations, because the phenomenon was associated with rebellious hysteria. The British military created the Tavistock Institute as its psychological warfare arm following World War I. It has been the forerunner of such strategic planning ever since. Dr. Emery's concept saw immediate application in NATO's use of swarming adolescence in toppling French President Charles de Gaulle in 1967. So, you know, we have these think tanks these, uh, that make it their business uh, to study uh, in some depth uh, the psychology and uh, the effects of uh, perception creating among young people, just to name one group of, uh, of individuals, uh, to help bring about uh, the desired uh, changes in, uh, in governments. And, um, you know, who, who knows who Soros is talking to? Uh, you know, who knows what... Um, what aims he's trying to bring about with his efforts. Well, if you continue on with that same quote, I thought that was pretty interesting there that Dr. Howard Perlmutter is a professor of social architecture at the Wharton School <clears throat> and a follower of Dr. that rock video in Kathmandu is an appropriate case with traditional cultures could be destabilized, thereby creating the possibility of a global civilization. There are two requirements for such a transformation, building internationally committed networks of international and locally committed organizations, creating global events through the transformation of a local event into one having virtually instantaneous international implications through mass media. Hmm. Well, um, what, what was that place in California that... Uh, the Laurel Canyon. Laurel Canyon. Thank uh, you. So, uh, just to give one example, um, you know, to imagine, and this was an article or a series of articles by I forget Dave his name, McGowan. Dave McGowan, uh, where basically he um, he outlines the influence of alphabet soup agencies in the U.S on the rock scene in the late 60s. Um, financial support, uh, setting up studios. Uh, I mean, so you take rock music in the late 60s, uh, a form of expressive rebellion, uh, very influential among millions of people, young and old. Um, 
a new form of, 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 uh, a new movement of music pretty much. And, uh, and you add to the mix the fact that, uh, there is this establishment element working behind it to help create, um, uh, a type of thinking, a perception and, and rock music and, and many of the songs that we've come to love and enjoy is tainted, uh, by this, uh, you know, by this other element that that that's trying to tainted by the devil. <laughs> yeah, if you if you like uh, music from the sixties, you know these uh, these series of articles will completely destroy <laughs> all your idols. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, I never liked the Doors. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. But Is this the one where they played the records backward and there's all the hidden messages. And no, no, that's the crazy version. But this well, is the sl- slightly less crazy version. Well, you know, when we look at what was going on in the 60s, um, aside from, you know, this diversion from, uh, you know, these elements in uh, in the rock scene, um, you know, we had, you saw this uh, birth of the hippie movement and, you know, some of their ideals uh, before they were tainted, you know, they were about community, uh, you know, giving up the, you know, materialism of uh, commercialism and, you know, and and kind of, you know, living living together in, in communities, and uh, you know, it was really something was happening. I think that you know, it was a it was a real threat uh, to you know the the structure uh, of of America, and you know, it's it's you, you look back at you know all the events of the '60s, um, and you know, there were some there were some real uh, amazing you know leaders. We, you know, there was the show on uh, Martin Luther King uh, only had a couple shows and you know to see uh, the leaders like him and uh, JFK and, um, and Bobby Kennedy you know assassinated during that period like you know it's, it's just like heartbreaking to see how that movement was uh, just you know torn apart it's like William said the fear you have to maintain that element of fear otherwise you lose your control uh, and it's not only fear, it's it's uh, dumbing down. Uh, there's this story of how George Harrison came to, uh, uh, George Harrison of the Beatles um, came who, to. Who, whom I am named after, by the way. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, he, he came to San Francisco in the late 60s to see what the scene was like. And uh, he went to a park and, and was checking things out. And uh, his reaction was disgust. Um, he didn't feel like, uh, people were, uh, raising their consciousness or awareness. He felt like they were, uh, just becoming these drugged out zombie slugs. And so, you know, if it's not fear that's being used to divide and conquer people, it's also apathy and drugs and, uh, and technology. And it's also just a perfect natural result to what America is. So... Um, you know, it's it's somewhat somewhat different than um, a kind of resistance moving movement popping up, or some kind of alternative um, lifestyle movement popping up, like like the hippies or whatever. This is a large percentage of the population who has just been put in the worst. It's just a it's kind of it's a breeding ground for dissent and for opposition to to the government and um, just the entire system. Now, just bringing it back to Baltimore for a second, just to give 
some uh, some context and perspective on what's actually going on and why people in Baltimore are so angry. Uh, just look at some of the uh, statistics, like what's going on there. Um, the in- there's huge income inequality in the city. Um, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, uh, the median household income in the state of Maryland was about $74,000. Now, that's about $40,000 more than the average um, black resident income. 40000 more. So 74000 is the median. So the average black um, income is like, what, 30, 34000 Now, um, only $13,000 more than the, white re- than the white residents of the city. Um, Baltimore's unemployment rate um, is currently at 8.7%, but unemployment among young black men between the ages of 20 and 24 is 30%. Same population of whites is 10%. So 37% of blacks that age are unemployed, whereas 10% of whites are. 24% of people in Baltimore live below the poverty line. One quarter of of the population lives below the poverty line. Now, I think that would be enough to to justify some kind of of movement, some kind of protest rally movement for change. In addition, and and in addition to that, we've got the fact that the cops are just killing people. So just put yourself in that position, and you know what are you going to think? Are you going to have any trust in the in the people in power? No. And why should you? What are they doing for you? nothing so you know just get some perspective on what's actually going on the lives these people are living and and then factor in the whole thing about police brutality fox news ran that thing well why did he run why did he run if he wasn't doing anything wrong in regards to frank gray why did he run well i think you know going back to the position that harrison's all asking us all to consider ourselves in well that position is face down with your arms and legs shackled on the floor of a police van yeah it's the position that he was put in. Yeah, I he mean, was, he was running because because that's what kill people. Like that's, How can that's, you that's, rise? That's what that. happens, and that's what happened. Exactly. So, what are we trying to get at with all of this that we've been talking about? Well, it's uh, the American people. They need to quickly learn the formula behind these color revolutions and these de- destabilizations and the agendas of the world oligarchy before it becomes too late. <clears throat> they must simply. Um, they must learn that simply because leaders appear to them, attempt to speak the same language and articulate right, meaning that they are men of the people. Protests are necessary. Directed rage may also be necessary, but the wanton communities belonging to you or your neighbors is not is is not only counterproductive; it produces rage that will be aimed back at you and just justifiably so. The entire country is being played like a fiddle. Baltimore is not an isolated collection of dupes. It is a micro. Uh, it's time the American people wise up and become street smart before it's too late. Well, and the gang member that said to the rioters, don't make this about tennis shoes. Don't dishonor Freddie Gray in that way. And it's true. There's a much bigger picture here that people need to see. Um, you know, most people out there, uh, like we were talking about earlier, you know, they're out there because, you know, they see the injustice and they want a better they want a better life for themselves and for others they're not going out there to throw bricks and you know uh, destroy property uh, those elements 
you know, what we're seeing, you know, like time and time again, like, you know, we're talking about the, um, you know, these uh, inserted elements um, that, you know, who, who are there to, you know, create this chaos and to paint a scene that depicts them as, you know, violent thugs when they, like, when the establishment, the, you know, the police, those are the violent thugs. Um, but even then, even if there were no, um, even if there wasn't any uh, provocation element in in riots like this, I mean, sometimes it's got to, like, going back to Donald Rumsfeld's quote, you you don't have to condone what's going on, but you can understand it. Because when people are placed, when, you know, when you, when people are placed in a cage, they tend to get violent. It's understandable in the sense that it's human nature that people will reach a breaking point. And that's the, that, that's often the, um, the kind of, the problem people have when looking at a situation like in Palestine, where, you know, even if you factor in, um, like Mossad involvement in, in doing all these sorts of things it comes, just comes back to the fact that these people are in an open air prison and people do tend to get violent. And even, a, even in international law, I mean, it's, it's under, it's understood that this is a normal response to occupation and to oppression. So any way you look at it, if you know what's going on, you can understand what's going on and see why these things are happening and then see what actually needs to be changed because uh, you know um just charging these six police officers is nothing really i mean what six police officers in one town when you know police kill 100 people in a month across the united states i mean that's just yeah. why not do something to prevent those 100 plus murders a month from happening instead of waiting for them to happen and then charging you know you know, every once in a while, we might see one police officer charged when this happens all the time. And only if there's video to back it up. Yeah. I mean, there is a federal mandate coming down now to order uh, police to wear body cameras at all times. I did see that getting kicked around. But, you know, even there there are how many cases do we see where there are video, you know, there is video of a police, you know, police killing somebody and, you know, nothing happens. You know, it's, 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 it's pretty crazy. Uh, the whole situation kind of reminds me of, um, what happened with, uh, Katrina and Katrina during Katrina, the, um, when the hurricane hit and, you know, people were trying to survive and they're being depicted as looters, yeah. you know, on, on another level, um, you know, Maryland wasn't hit by a natural disaster, but with, you know, this social engineering, you know, their lives have, you know, have been heavily impacted and, you know, they're, they're trying to survive, you know, and, and still being depicted this way. Well, just to, cause that's a great analogy, Shane, uh, just to recap what happened. Uh, this was in 04 or 05, um, when, uh, Louisiana was hit by Katrina, uh, you had thousands of, uh, mostly black uh, residents of Katrina who, who lived in um, subsidized housing and, and who were poor, um, they were uh, basically left with no resources or, or little resources. Uh, you had um, organizations, I think, like the Red Cross, who were turned away by FEMA and government agencies. You had 
people who are just trying to stores to get some food and fresh water uh, arrested and or gunned down. Um, uh, this wasn't this wasn't merely uh, uh, incompetence or indifference. Uh, this was um, keeping people uh, imprisoned and, under the worst of circumstances and and studying their reactions and seeing how, as an experiment, uh, the media can you know spin the perceptions. But what was interesting was. You occasionally had a guy like um, Shepard Smith on Fox News. I think it was Geraldo, wasn't it? Or maybe it was both. It was both, and yeah. uh, and and actually getting emotional and pleading and like you know for a few minutes you get to see glimpses of their humanity, saying help these people, uh, and um, and of course uh, they they weren't in, until days later. So um, I think is is. Other situations um, arise in the environment uh, with the economy, um, with more injustice. Uh, we're going to see the, the same, you know, similar kinds of, of approaches to uh, dealing with people and 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 helping them or, and not helping them um, until uh, most of the public is going to be so apathetic or indifferent um, that. We'll just be able to get away with more and more. Well, I think with you, when you called it, you know, an experiment, a social experiment, and I thought I thought that was spot on, you know, because you know they took the lessons that were learned uh, during that period, that engineered experiment, and you know we're seeing them apply what they learned today. I think maybe we can move on from Baltimore for a few minutes here. Um, I remember one of us had mentioned just the oh yeah I think it was you Alan talking about maybe it was Shane talking about uh, the situation in Ukraine being kind of a a further down the line version of what's going on in the states so you know there's some interesting stuff that's coming out of Ukraine in the past few days past week or so or past couple of weeks um, first of all today is the anniversary of the Odessa massacre from last year where several dozen people were killed, murdered in the trade union's building um, in Odessa by right sector militants. Now, this massacre has yet to be fully investigated, even. First, they came for the trade unionists. Yeah. And, uh, like, I still remember when that happened and just watching the, watch, again, watching the footage on YouTube of the aftermath and what had happened and what was happening. And just the the... The inhumanity of what was going on there while these people are either burning alive or being suffocated, people who have been beaten and tortured and thrown out of windows or who have jumped out of the windows from the burning building and then beaten to death on the floor outside, the woman who was killed, the pregnant woman. pregnant woman who was strangled and just left on a desk. It was It's just disgusting. And like I said, it has yet to be investigated, the, you know, the, the people that were responsible have yet to be brought to justice. Now, because of this, it being the anniversary, uh, Kiev has deployed 3,000 law enforcement officers into Odessa to curb any kind of um, rally or trouble that might come up. Now, in the month of April... Unity revolution yes, that might be occurring there. Exactly. 
irony of ironies coming a year after Maidan. But uh, in April, the SBU, um, Ukraine's security service, uh, you know, they have announced that in April they arrested dozens of, quote, separatists. So a separatist is a person who doesn't like the government. So um, dozens of, of these separatist leaders have been arrested in, in Odessa um, in the lead up to, to the anniversary of the massacre there. Now, uh, and of course, it's when you think about a situation like in a town like Odessa, Odessa isn't, um, isn't a part of the Donetsk or Lugansk republics. Um, they are currently occupied by Kiev. The people that live there, at least um, you know, a large percentage of them, are understandably anti-government, anti-Kiev, because they see they see the farce and the ruse that that Maidan was. Now, so that's going on. Um, so there is opposition and dissent in Kiev that is being. Uh, clamped down upon by the security services. People are being arrested left and right. People are being assassinated um, or being suicided. People, you know, just uh, a string of mysterious deaths with opposition figures. Um, one of whom was uh, a guy named Olez Buzina, something like that. He was a famous Ukrainian writer, uh, opposition. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I'd read that he was the most read author in Ukraine, Ukrainian author in Ukraine. He was killed um, just recently. Now, on April 30th, uh, Cyber Berkut, they are a group of kind of hacktivists. They're like the, kind of like the Eastern European Russian version of um, Anonymous or who are those other guys, whoever they are we have over here. And they've been releasing... Um, like people's e- private emails and leaked documents and phone conversations, uh, you know, since the start of the of the situation in Ukraine, they were the guys that released that uh, conversation between Ashton and Pyatt talking about the the Maidan snipers. So they just released the they hacked well allegedly hacked the inbox of uh, a Kharkov official who was complaining to the nationalists, so these are the guys like Right Sector and Azov Battalion, groups like that, about their use of, quote, excessive force, excessive force, end quote, against Abzina, the the journalist and writer. So the email had said, um, so this is the, the Kharkov politician writing to, like, the head of one of these nationalist organizations. He says, you bastards, what are you doing? You consider this to be an intimidation measure? Do you know how much barking there will be on Moscow TV after this? Damn, I understand that this bald head had been asking for a brick in the head for a long time, but it was supposed to be a brick, not a gun, understand? You were given license to shut this, shut this trash up, but not permanently. You had told me about knocked out teeth, broken fingers. As for the fate of your team of thugs, uh, Dublon, who's the nickname of a Ukrainian security service, um, according to Cyber Recruit, he called me personally three times. Now get back to Kharkov uh, and return to base. The remaining orders are cancelled for now. So this is the email that this guy allegedly sent the nationalists. Now the the guy, the the alleged killer, responded back to him saying, 
Do not ever dare to humiliate me or my boys again. We took up arms in order to clean out native, our native land of garbage and traitors to the national idea, and not in order to make you sad about the fact that another traitor to Ukraine went to a place from where he will never, well, from where he will never bark again. We will not come back from Kiev. And why did your poem reciting Dublon uh, give us the authority then? We have money, weapons, and allies in every corner of the country. We will return once we finish the job. And as you know, we have a lot of work yet to be done. Glory to Ukraine. So, <laughs> um, now Cyberbukut um, has a pretty good reputation of, of releasing accurate stuff. So, you know, this may or may not be, be real, but it, it makes sense. It's pretty obvious that there has been uh, uh, a campaign against opposition members in Ukraine their information is posted on these nationalist websites and then you know the next day or a day later they're found dead so the what this suggests though is that the the operation is being run from from uh, this Kharkov region and the politicians are directly involved so whether that's true or not you know it's impossible to verify but i'd say it's probable at the very least now uh cyberbarkut was also in the in the alternative news recently, um, because a couple of weeks ago they released uh, a video that had allegedly been sent to them by members of the Azov Battalion, and Azov again they're one of these neo-Nazi groups. I mean, you can just Google their name and look at the do a Google Pictures search, and you'll just see you know they love swastikas, the Zieg Heil. Um, and they are responsible for a lot of the instances of torture and murder that have gone on for the past for the past year. They're just complete nut jobs, um, mercenaries, killers. Anyways, this video that they released, you know, again allegedly they sent a video to to Cyberbarkut depicting um, uh, a crucifixion and alive of a man allegedly. Uh, one of the separatists that um, are being arrested, like are being arrested in Odessa. And of course, the separatist is just a person that supports, for example, the DPR or LPR, or just opposes the regime in power <clears throat> that got there, you know, thanks to the U.S. State Department. So this video basically shows a group of men at night um, holding a, another man down, onto a cross, uh, taping his arms to the cross in order to support his weight, then pounding nails through his hands into the cross, raising the cross, <clears throat> um, jabbing him in the stomach with like looks like a butt of a rifle or a, a stick or something, and then lighting the base of the cross on fire. The, the flames go up the cross very fast, and then the video cuts out right as the flames are reaching uh, this man's feet. So um, Life News, a Russian news channel, had reported on this, and they say they, they verified its authenticity. It's hard to know how they were able to, um, and Life News has a kind of reputation for being kind of sensationalistic. But coming from Cyberbarkut, uh, these guys wouldn't knowingly release anything that was fake. I've watched the video. It is disturbing to watch. It looks real to me. You know, I personally think it is. <clears throat> But, you know, it's, it's possible to say for sure. 
of course, the Western media, those who have reported on it, the Ukrainian media, of course, say that it is an obvious Russian hoax. So the Russians filmed this themselves in order just to give Azov a bad name. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, regardless of whether it's true or not, um, whether it's a real video or not, the Azov Battalion is on the record for doing things, you know, just as bad, maybe not as um, overt, you know, using the crucifix, but, I mean, pounding nails into people, cutting people up, killing them, burning them, torturing them, they've done all that. Yeah, I, I would say the word is theatrical. Yeah. Um, there was a report issued in uh, March the 1st uh, by a Moscow-based foundation for the study of democracy, um, which was, I mean, basically it, it sounds like a, a compilation of testimonies among um, many of the witnesses to a lot of these uh, abuses, uh, torture, um, murder, uh, among people of uh, DPR and LPR, um, the report is called War Crimes of the Armed Forces and Security Forces of Ukraine, Torture and Inhumane Treatment. It's 144 pages long in both uh, Russian and, and English. And um, basically, uh, it, it's an account of how so many of these people who uh, you know, as you know, as you were alluding to, Harrison, who have connections to, uh, you know, separatists or um, or journalists, uh, are being systematically uh, kidnapped, tortured, uh, raped, uh, and the stories go on and on. Um, I mean, it. it it just speaks volumes of a couple of things. Uh, one, who, who these people really are, uh, whether or not Poroshenko uh, can control them or not. And two, uh, the very fact that uh, the U.S. is uh, supporting them almost directly mm -hmm. uh, with military aid and, and God knows what else. Um I mean, if, if Baltimore is, uh, is a, is a kind of a microcosm of, what's happening here in the U.S., then you, know, you can say that uh, Ukraine is a microcosm of the U.S.'s malevolence uh, globally. Um, because uh, even if, you know, our, our soldiers and government officials aren't wearing, um, you know, swastikas or zig-howling, uh, their behavior, uh, their policies, the people that they support – materially um, are the most overt form of, of, uh, of evil, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, that we could possibly see, I think. Well, the, um, that account that you, you know, just read in Harrison, you know, it's so horrific and, you know, it kind of reminded me of, you know, our, our last week's topic, you know, about, you know, pedophiles in power and, you know, we don't want to think that, you know, these things exist. But, you know, when we look um, at our history critically and when we look at what's going on today critically, you know, these things are happening. These these um, just unimaginable evils, you know, are, you know, all around us. And, you know, it really does help 
to, you know, see them for what they are and also have, you know, a knowledge of human psychology and a knowledge of psychopathy. Because without that, you know, if you're defining everybody else as, you know, you see yourself, you know, then you're going to get um, kind of a warped image of, of things. And, um, yeah, you know, they just have to look at the uh, the lessons of history, you know, look at Nazi Germany and, you know, what happened there. That is... That's we exactly are seeing what I was signs. thinking. It's just simply repeating. I mean, if you replace a couple words in the the paragraph that Harrison just read with the Germans and the, I mean, Americans supplied arms to Nazi Germany for a long time. I mean, it's it's exactly repeating itself over again. Well, some other things are going on. Uh, of course, you know, we we reported on the Minsk talks that happened. When was it back in November, the, the second round? And, you know, we pretty much said it was a, you know, it's good on paper, but it's pretty much a joke because it won't be realized. And, um, you know, DPR and LPR were pretty good about uh, following the, the first points, the, the prelimin- preliminary points in the agreements, like um, moving all their heavy artillery back to the the agreed upon line and um, engaging, you know, having a ceasefire. Of course, Kiev hasn't even done that. They never took all their heavy artillery out. They've been, in fact, bringing new arms in and just in recent weeks have resumed like constant shelling of towns and cities in the region. Um, just in the, in the past couple of days, like I think two days ago, there were, 54 violations of the ceasefire from Kiev the day before that there was something like 43 so dozens of times a day they're they're bombing and firing um against you know violating the Minsk agreements if there is any and the 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 thing that gets me is that the even the UN has got on board with these Minsk agreements and yet with these just flagrant violations on the part of of Kiev you'd you'd think that, you know, if there was any real justice or, or law in the well, world, it's who'd be done. Paris, I mean, those lines are very confusing. I heard it on NPR. They oh, just yeah. don't know where to put their tanks. It's yeah. confusing. They can't read that map. Yeah, I know. It's it's really difficult when you're mentally challenged like a lot of those guys are. So you can have some kind of sympathy for them. But uh, all, a lot of these provocations are, of course, leading up to the Victory Day celebration, uh, May 9th. I believe it is. And the DPR has has said they've basically, they've got intelligence that Kiev is planning a, a major kind of offensive or provocation on that day. And that's what all these, um, you know, relatively minor violations of the, of the ceasefire are leading up to. I say relatively just because, I mean, they, they still are killing people. They're bombing residential areas. They're firing bombs and, and guns, so you know, it's still a violation. But while all this is going on, there are now all kinds of international uh, you know, foreign instructors and mercenaries in Ukraine supplied from countries all over, U.S., Canada, Poland. Um, you know, there's a list of a dozen countries who have supplied <clears throat> um, you know, military instructors for Kiev, um, apparently, even uh, well, the DPR at least reported that there were seven, 70 members of Academy, formerly known as Blackwater, that have been found 
And um, speaking of NGOs, the DPR again, they expelled um, an American rescue committee. Rescue committee. Um, these are members of a certain charity that was uh, allocated from Sweden, Ireland, and Germany and invited to Donetsk by the UN. So these members, the members, uh, the American members of this committee were expelled from Donetsk. They were there on the pretext of providing support for women with PTSD, suffering from PTSD as a result of what's going on there. I mean, the shellings, the torture, the rape, you know, the, the death, um, and everything else. Uh, these guys were um, caught spying. They were, in, in their interviews with the women, they were asking questions, trying to gauge their loyalties <clears throat> to either Donetsk or um, you know, the, the government in Kiev. They were trying to get information on the movements of the armed forces in the regions, the militias. They were forced to, well, forced the, the forms that they were given to fill out included um, spots for like their passport information. So they're gathering information on all these women. They tried to gain access to the management offices for the, the leaders, the leadership and the just civil and uh, Republic management and uh, spying technology was discovered in their offices. So it looks like, you know, the Americans are uh, not only, not only did they have a, uh, the primary hand in what went on in Kiev and, you know, they're pretty much running the show. The CIA is you know, out of the SBU offices and through their puppets in the in the government there, you know they're also sending their their spies into Donetsk to to try to make trouble there. So um, there's another interesting report from the DPR as well um, about some third party actors that have some sophisticated equipment and uh, military capabilities that are attacking Ukrainian soldiers. Mm. Kind of wondering what's going on there. <clears throat> well, I've got a question. Um, so it just seems like very slowly, or maybe not so slowly anymore, uh, all this uh, U.S. aggression is being ramped up. We see it in Yemen. Uh, we see it in Syria. I think another uh, 50 innocent people were just murdered by um, U.S. or NATO forces attempting to eradicate ISIS. Uh, we're seeing it now in Ukraine. It's becoming full-blown. Uh, the analogy has been made between the U.S. and Nazi Germany in terms of aggression and the lessons of history. We've seen an incredible amount of restraint on the part of um, the Russian government, uh, Assad, uh, the Syrian government, um, and even... Uh, the peoples of the DPR and LPR who are trying to abide by the Minsk agreements. What, if and maybe this isn't a good question, who, I mean, certainly we're not looking forward to it, but do we have some idea as to what the breaking point may be, where the U.S. steps over the line, where it may happen, who will respond? Well, you have to wonder, you know, if um, the United States has already stepped across that line and you know we whether people have all recognized that you know i i don't know if if that's necessarily a part of um 
a part of that. But, you know, I think certainly like the, when we see, when we saw, um, you know, the whole crisis in Ukraine unfold, you know, that was such, um, it's uh, stepping over that line, you know, it was so obvious. So, and, and since then, you know, we've seen, like you said, you know, these crises unfolding everywhere, you know, it's like we, all the, all the different actions that, you know, have been going on for the past decade are all, you know, accumulating and exploding, you know, all over the place, you know, like I said, uh, whether it's in Iraq, Yemen, Libya, um, you know, everything is, is, it's, it's really going crazy. So is there a time when, you know, that, uh, people will recognize that, you know, I don't, I don't know, even, even if things do go, you know, completely South outcry and concern will have to outweigh the profit. And it's, it's like, you know, William said, and others have pointed out today, it's just, it's a fear mongering in part. It's keeping, as Alon mentioned before, the public dumbed down and out of touch. And it's, you know, war is profitable. These things are profitable. I mean, it may sound oversimplistic to take it down to a budget line, but. Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting to think about it in terms of economics, because uh, I think the U- EU has to vote in July as to whether or not they're going to maintain Russian sanctions. And you already do have an outcry among, I think, the Italians and, and a couple of other nations. I know the German business people are, you know, they're tearing their hair out. Uh, and many of them who had businesses in Ukraine left. Um, so there there may be this balance, of, if only in the economic realm, of, uh, of outcry, um, of how ridiculous questions are, um, that leads to a greater amount of awareness. But I I think a large part of this is also fear. Uh, I think most of the countries of the, of the Western world and certainly third world nations fear the U S the U S has the corner on military aggression, uh, psychological operations, uh, covert operations, economic hitmen. um, And, and so Everyone is is kind of afraid of the bully, uh, but but also making these tentative uh, statements and gestures towards independence, towards aligning itself to uh, the, the new Russian uh, Chinese uh, economic connections, um, and and nobody wants, you know, of course, you know, all sane people want to avoid the next uh, the next big. No one wants to confront the U.S. No one wants to confront NATO. But it, it seems to me that there will be a step taken um, because of whatever forces are driving the U.S. and NATO towards aggression, that at some point, somewhere, somehow, uh, some government is going to say, no, that's it. It's done. Uh, and they're going to respond. <clears throat> well, on a little lighter note, uh, we have somebody here that, as a uh, solution for uh, uh, Kiev's uh, economic problems. Uh, We have the uh, seventh richest person in UK, the billionaire uh, Sir Richard Branson. He's suggesting the Ukrainian government should legalize drugs. 
The world has been combating drugs for more than 50 years, and Ukraine is one of the worst records in this battle. Um, I was told that out of all the countries in the world, Ukraine is the one of the worst in this war. <clears throat> you fought for your freedom and are fighting right now. So, he, you know, he understands that 300,000 Ukrainians are drug addicts and advised to legalize marijuana, citing Portugal as an example where drugs were decriminalized. And uh, this cost Portugal over 60% less than keeping them in prison. So let the money better flow to the budget than to the bribe takers. The high level of corruption in Ukraine results in imprisoning those who are too poor to bribe their authorities. Kiev should redirect the money used for keeping drug addicts in prison for educational, uh, maybe re-educational purposes, the billionaire concluded. And as a reminder, drugs were used to stir up sentiments during the Maidan turmoil, according to multiple witnesses. Yeah, might work. Except the government will just spend all the money on arms. <laughs> but uh, I think we're going to end it there. We've run down to the end of the show. So unless anyone has any final thoughts, we're going to shut it down for the day. So thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week. Tomorrow we've got the we've got Behind the Headlines. Then we've got the Health and Wellness Show on Monday. So be sure to tune in there. And, yeah, everyone have a good rest of the day. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks Goodbye. for listening. <laughs>